So tonight we're going to talk about mindfulness of breathing and focus on the teachings that are present in one of the discourses the Buddha gave called mindfulness of breathing, (laughs) uh, the Anapanasati Sutta. I'd like to describe the development of mindfulness of breathing as a practice in and of itself and then what happens when we integrate that into daily life. Um, But to begin with, I'd like a few people, uh, if you can put simply something you experienced in that guided meditation, including it was really annoying. (laughs) Whatever you experienced, because it actually happened, is valid. Um, But anything experienced during that sitting, um, a few people, just to kind of ground what we're about to say in actual experience, not just the theory. Oh, wait for the mic. Yeah. It's all very official. Uh, No, I find that the guiding during the meditation, which keeps coming up again and again and again, very distracting. Very distracting. Distracting. Yeah, Yeah, because you're the teacher. I should pay attention to you, but I'm also trying to. I know. You know, pay attention to me. So, for what it's worth. Dripping. Pay attention to your breath, not to my voice. Well, shut up so I can... <laughs> How many people found that uh, stressful or, or a challenge? Yeah, so there was a lot of guidance in that. One of the reasons I just wanted to give us a taste, because there's many steps in this discourse about how to actually develop the practice of mindfulness of breathing, and we couldn't do all of them, but I just wanted to give us little um, pointers all the way through but I agree, that was a lot of guiding, um, and maybe more than what could be useful. Anybody else? What was your experience? Uh, I'm choosing to speak for the reason that I have exactly the opposite experience, mm-hmm. so I decided to throw that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I found the guided um, aspect of the meditation very grounding. Mm-hmm. I think it 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 can go either way for yeah. me as well. And tonight it was very grounding for mm-hmm. me and it kept, it, I had a great meditation, so thank you. Great. <laughs> I'll take the honesty either way. <laughs> I, um, I appreciated the uh, teaching that if you're struggling, you may be forcing it mm-hmm. too much. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I uh, persistently have issues at this time of night with falling asleep. Sure. Which, and um, I think uh, I'm sort of at a place in my practice where that made a lot of sense. That is sort of how my relationship to that sleepiness it comes. And there are times when I'm like, I've been out, and then I come back to your voice. And um, I found that very, very helpful to realize it's like, that, okay, the sleepiness is just something that happened. Yeah. Um, and I think that. Uh, description of how to relate to all that experience and the relationship to struggle in particular was very useful. Great. So, thank you. Thank you. In that, um, effort is definitely needed because without it we would be just adrift. But there's a, there's, a, there's a balance point and you start noticing you're using too much effort when you're trying to force something. Um, you can notice that you're getting into a bad relationship with your dog if you're dragging it for a walk. <laughs> it's like, it's good for you. You're going to love it. Come on. And the dog's like, not, not if you're going to go this way. This is not what I want. I don't want to be dragged for a walk. And so it's a, we use some effort, but there definitely can be too much effort. And that's when we start to feel disappointed, frustrated, stop wandering. We get coachy with ourselves. And you can know that you're actually increasing the tension. So the mind will never calm down if it's being coached too hard. But if the mind is blasé and adrift, and it's like, oh, I love this, we just get to drift for a while, I never get to do this in life, it's great. But that is sort of a drifty mind. You might be a little bit more encouraging, but just notice when you're causing tension from effort. Hi, um, I noticed my places and like as I was settling into my breathing that places in my body would get really tense mm. and then I'd want to like move around and wiggle and I also noticed that like 
there's certain like things that my mind likes to do to like hook me. And so there's a feeling that I'm sitting with a, with frustration mm-hmm. um, and kind of like tenseness, just kind of like, uh, uh, <laughs> like I just wanted to go away. Mm-hmm. But that's where I'm at. Thanks. Well, thanks for sharing that. And that definitely can happen too with um, progressing through a guided meditation like this, trying to keep up with it, trying to do it. Um, it can get very dewy in the mind. And so relating to the breath and trying to keep up with the steps, um, there definitely, it can cause that. Um, so once exposed to this, then we find our own natural rhythm to it. And uh, um, hopefully we won't kick up a lot of tension while we're trying to find um, that balance. And one more back there, then we'll go on. <laughs> I've always wondered, um, having had asked many years ago, um, is there a point where during uh, a meditation, guided or not, that uh, either your mind or your body has resistance and so you go into kind of an unconscious state and it doesn't mean that you don't want to participate, you don't want to void your mind, but there's a lot of... um, Internal chatter, maybe, would be the way to describe it. Uh, does that mean that you're really resistive, or um, what was your it might. thought on that? It might. You might just be in a chattery, just the conditions are right for you to be chattery, but it also might be a resistance to intimacy. And so when we start getting really strong hindrances, if they're really strong, like I, I don't know what it is, I actually like being present, but boy, I cannot show up today. There might be something about showing up intimately that the mind doesn't want to encounter. And so it comes up with a lot of procrastinating activity rather than being with the breath. And so that might be resistance. It also might be too much caffeine. It might be too much activity going on in the day. And Basic just, fatigue. <laughs> and it could also be fatigue if you're feeling that restlessness or the drowsiness. So we don't know, but you can, it's, if it's persistent, it's worth asking the question, is there anything I'm avoiding about the present? Is there anything, because sometimes it's just right below the surface. If I was more present, I would feel whatever that is. And so we don't want to. It's good to actually honor that, because if you honor it, then the mind's like, oh, okay, you're not going to force me into something. Okay, well, I'll take a look. Like, What is it that we're trying to avoid? And it could be some huge amount of grief or anger or a huge pocket of energy or something. But if you look and you don't find anything you're avoiding, it could just be the conditions. And therefore, we relax into the conditions that we find ourselves in. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, in turning our attention towards this discourse, Mindfulness of Breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta, it has, um, it's an interesting discourse the Buddha gave. Um, it's one of uh, three discourses where he carefully describes how to develop mindfulness all the way from wherever you're starting to full liberation. Um, so it's, it, it carries that sort of importance. And in it, he describes 16 steps of how to kind of walk up this staircase and develop one step at a time Uh, so that you can actually liberate your mind um, fully. And to be honest, it usually is not as simple as one step at a time. Usually it's five steps up and three back, and then four steps forward and one back. And then it's an up and down process depending on the terrain you're actually uh, encountering that day in your life, whatever is going on for you. But over time, you actually can um, get comfortable walking yourself up and down this staircase. And so it gives a kind of a, um, a sense of how to welcome yourself step by step into a liberating process. So the first two steps are, are fairly similar. One is breathing in long. She knows I, bring in, I breathe in long. Breathing in short. She knows I breathe in short. So knowing the breath is one thing. I know I'm breathing. That's a partial relationship. But to know that you've had a long breath means you were there for the entire breath. So what's being pointed at here 
is a sense that you're aware of one full, complete breath cycle. And also, did you know that breath? It's like, oh, okay, I knew a whole breath cycle, but that breath was special. What was special about it? Well, one thing you can say that was special about that particular breath was its length. But also you can get to know its depth. Was it just a shallow upper chest breath? Was it one of those deep relaxation breaths that went deep into your abdomen? Um, what else was going on as you experienced that full breath cycle? So this is the first part is just, can you get to know a full length of breath one at a time? The uh, third step, and those are the first two, just short and long. The third step is um, feeling the whole body I breathe in, feeling the whole body I breathe out. And so first we just use the breath to get us intimate at all with the flow of present time experiences. Then we open up just a little wider in our perspective. It's like, oh, I have a body. I've been so chattered up in my mind. I forgot I had a body, forgot I had a breath. But now I'm aware I have this breath happening and it's gotten me into my body. And now I'm gonna open up and like, oh yeah, I have arms and legs and torso. So just expanding a little bit. This breath is happening within a body and becoming aware of what's happening in the body. And the fourth step is calming down all these bodily activities. What I like about that is that <clears throat> this happens all through the Buddha's discourses. First you become aware of something and then you skillfully learn to calm it down. If you go right to trying to calm it down, you're usually forcing what you want on top of the body. So the body might feel agitated and you just clamp it down, calm down body. First thing you do is you open up. Okay, there's restlessness in the body, there's sleepiness, there's aches and pains. I'm becoming aware of this whole body. Little bits of pain here and there. I'm feeling okay up here, it's all, this is interesting, it's the whole body. Then learning to invite your body to be a little more settled. That often means you don't override anything in the body, but just by an invitation. Now that I can be with you, body, let's relax just one degree. So you're not setting up a war or an antagonism with the body. He's like, I see you, body. I see what's going on. In the middle of all this activity, let's just come down a notch. And sometimes when you're aware of something, just that awareness alone begins to soften the agitation, whatever's going on, whatever activity is happening. You're aware of it. And the awareness plus a light invitation allows the body to settle. So this is the, of the 16 steps, these are the first four, becoming aware of the full length of your breath, becoming aware of your body, and then inviting all that's happening in your body to settle some. We're going to the next group, uh, experiencing delight, this word in Pali is piti, experiencing, some people call it bliss. That's once the body settles some, you can feel very subtle activity happening. And you really can't feel it, you can't fake this one. If you really haven't, if the body hasn't settled much, you probably won't feel much that's subtle in the body. You'll still be kind of caught up in the coarse activity of the body. But once you settle some, you can feel uh, subtle experiences through the body and you become aware of that. That's the body relationship to this word PT. The mental relationship is that the mind becomes, once the body settles, you can begin to see all the activities of mind. It's just, it's uh, very active and dynamic. This is becoming aware of this factor of uh, PT. The next step is to experience uh, contentedness. So you see all this busyness, all this PT happening in your body, happening in your mind. And there again, you invite yourself into a more calm state. First experiencing it, then calming it down. From a little more calm, you can investigate what's really going on in my mind. What, what am I caught up in? What are all these activities? Oh, I'm really caught up in future planning. I'm a little more calm now so I can see what's actually happening in my mind is I have a lot of anger about something somebody said to me earlier and I'm planning what I'm gonna say in response. Okay, I can see that now. Before I was kind of caught up in it, it was a lot of chaos. Where's my breath? There's my breath, anger. There's my breath, anger. Like, oh, let's calm it down a little bit. Mm, anger, anger. It's like, oh, interesting. I have 
this activated process. I'm going to let this calm down even further. So you investigate a little bit and calm it down. And these are the next two steps. Perceiving mental activity, calming mental activity. And it reflects the same process we did with the body, perceiving what's happening in the body to the degree you can. And then inviting it to be a little more calm, perceiving what's happening in the mind and the heart, inviting it to be a little more calm. Of the 16 steps, those are the first eight. You don't have to memorize this. It's actually in a very ancient text. Uh, it's, uh, if, you, if you want to look it up, um, it's in the collection of the Buddha's discourses called the Majjhima Nikaya. It's the middle-length sayings. And it's uh, the Sutta 118. So if you want to do that research. But I just wanted to get more get the impression of there actually are steps to take. First, knowing the breath then knowing the body, settling the body to the degree that's possible, then calming the mind, seeing the mind a little more clearly once you first have calmed it at all, and then further calming the mind when you can see what's been activated, what's really going on, what are you chewing on, what are you being distracted by. Then if you can actually get to the place where the mind does begin to calm down, more than the activity of the mind, you can become aware of the quality, the spaciousness of the mind. Is your mind relaxed and open? Is it really uh, tight? Even if you've got it to calm down, does it still feel tense? Or does it begin to relax and open? This is knowing the space space of your mind um, instead of the activities of it. It's more of the spaciousness of it. It's a little bit, uh, if you, uh, analogy works for you, it works for me. Um, if you have a lot of fish in a fish tank and they're all very active, they're also spinning the water around, but you can't really see how active the water is because the fish are so active. Then the fish begin to calm down and then you begin to see all the water in the tank and you can see if there are currents by the way that the fish are moving or the way the uh, little plants in the tank are moving, or if the water's pretty calm too. So there's mental activity, but it's happening within a mental space, within a mental climate. This may or may not be accessible um, to you. Uh, With practice, you get to know um, the activity of my mind is calm, but also the, the experience of my mind is calm, and they can become another way to further uh, bring in stillness. From that place of uh, seeing the mind, stilling the mind, the next step is to gladden the mind, gladden the mind. So the mind has become still, and it could fall into a type of stillness and kind of begin to check out a little bit in that stillness. And so you let it be still, but you would begin to enjoy the stillness. You begin to enjoy the calm. You bring in a little bit more um, lightness and lift in the mind. So it doesn't just still its way down into sleepiness or still its way down into um, non-activity. It becomes still and then it becomes joyful. Not radically joyful because that would be agitating, but a sort of light, nice light lift within that stillness. When the mind is resting like this, if you really get to taste it, you can contrast it to what it's like to be stuck in traffic, or what it's like to be caught in an argument, or what it's like to be full of too much excitement or too much fear. And you can begin to contrast the type of pervasive peace that's possible because you've let go of all that agitation, just temporarily, to know what it's like to have the mind released from all this turbulence. So these are the first 12 steps of 16. And it's just about settling. The whole kind of theme of it is settling, stilling, quieting, and then bringing up some useful joy and delight, contentment, but not so much that you don't settle. Find this balance between being settled and still being uh, happy, still being content. 
not many people are doing this in their practice. And it's not uh, talked about a lot in mindfulness practice that you should be doing all these various things. Um, but it's laid out here. And it was interesting, when I went to practice in Burma, I worked with this uh, incredible, two incredible teachers, and one guy got me right into really intense investigations of arising and passing, everything's impermanent. Get in there and see it. I went in there and see it with a really good work ethic, and it was turbulent. It was like riding an untamable horse. I just was bucking around for a long time and got good at it, but it was just the mind was bucking and bucking and bucking. I went to work with a second teacher, and he really taught me about uh, working with the mind, befriending the mind, calming the mind, gladdening the mind. I was like, wow, I get to do this? It feels so illegal. Like, I, it's, <laughs> it's like, are you sure this is the same tradition? Because the first guy didn't want me to do this at all. <laughs> it was just like my tenacity of will, I will break my habits of suffering. This guy's like, it's going to be so much easier if you calm this horse down before you try to ride it. Let's just calm it down. Let's calm down the body, calm down the heart, calm down the mind. Let the body be happy. Let the heart be happy. Let the mind be happy and calm. Get to know these things. I was like, wow, I had no idea. <laughs> and I was grateful. Uh, it was a big turning in my practice more towards um, the usefulness of joy and happiness and love and kindness and patience, all these beautiful qualities that I wasn't necessarily developing when I was just had this work ethic. Then we come into the, the, um, the last four steps of these 16. And again, I'm kind of just giving you the impression of it, just so you can see what the progression tastes like. She trains herself in contemplating anicca, which is contemplating impermanence. So just as we added in this particular guided sit, there's a lot of calming the mind, developing intimacy, and then within the field of developing intimacy, can you then see everything you're experiencing is arising fresh in the moment that you're experiencing it. So your ear cannot hear yesterday's sound. If you record it and play it again, it's hearing today's recording. You can't hear yesterday's sound. When you look up at the night sky, you're seeing starlight that may be uh, millions of years old. If you use a telescope, it may be even billions of years old, but it's freshly touching your eye. You actually can't touch anything of the past. You can't touch anything of the future. All we can actually touch is the present moment. It's fresh in that moment, and then it doesn't stay. It doesn't accumulate. No sound has ever stayed. It might be replaced by a similar one. If I had a, um, a piano or an electric keyboard, I could press middle C and just hold it down. And it might feel like Middle C has come to stay for as long as I hold it down. It's like, when's it going to take his finger off the button? I can't take that anymore. It's too much Middle C. It's really fresh, freshly arriving over and over and over. And it doesn't stay. It freshly arises and it's gone. I mean, it's quite awesome. We're so familiar with it. We're a little bit dull in that familiarity. But it's quite amazing that experiences don't stay. And it's quite, it's, quite, um, uh, it's quite a blessing experiences don't stay, as much as we want some of them to stay. If you know what a sonic boom is, it's when all the sound waves of something pass, of a jet flying over hit you at the same time. And rather than hearing <coughs> the jet engine over length of time, all the sound waves hit you at the same time, and so you get this blast. So if experiences didn't pass away, they would just start crashing into each other. It's like having a, this is silly, but that was interesting. <laughs> I saw it as like a train passing between two tunnels and it's just whipping by. If you closed off one tunnel because you wanted things to stay, it just would be an incredible train wreck if things didn't pass away as fast as they were arising and passing away. So thank God things are passing away. Where would we put it all if it didn't pass away? So things arise fresh things pass away fresh. But they can look so similar in that process 
that we can be a little sloppy and say things are staying and things are not changing. So this bell is a good example. This bell made of metal, it appears like it's not arising and passing. It's staying to the eye, it looks that way. It's just changing so slow that we can't perceive it. So if you looked at an hour hand of a, of a clock, glanced away and glanced back, it's like, yep, that hand's permanent. The second one is moving. The minute hand, not so sure, but that hour hand, that one's permanent. Look away, look back. But then it did, like, wait, somewhere in there it did change. It was changing all along. It's just so slow. We couldn't see it. That actually is um, one of the ways that we get caught and one of the ways that we suffer is we have this coasting relationship to things as if they're permanent and then we get quite shocked when we realize that they're not. I'm having this uh, experience with my parents as they age. I've known that they were aging all along. They've been aging since I was young. I knew theoretically where it was heading, but the actual experience of them aging is on a whole other level than anything I had prepared myself for otherwise. I just have some understanding to apply, but actually watching them get older um, is shocking to me. Watching this body get older and that it's not stoppable, it's very personal. <laughs> There's the theory, but when you run into the theory actually gets quite personal, it's a whole other level to realize, oh, this body actually was changing all along. It's just for a while it wasn't changing that much. So I kind of put my elbow on it like it wasn't going anywhere. It's like, ah, yeah, this, one's, this one feels steady. And then, whoops, we went and changed. So things have that capacity to change at any moment. Things are changing slowly all along, and then almost anything can change quickly at any point. That's the actual universe we live in. But uh, it's not the one that we have, it's not how we set ourselves up emotionally and psychologically. We, we try to lean on things and hope that they're not changing or that we'll control the changing nature or that changing will happen sometime later, but for now I can rest upon it. And with deeper intimacy with anything, all you find is change. So it takes non-intimacy, a type of dull or something where you, you just don't actually know something that well, that you get to get away with thinking that things are permanent. And yet landing on this experience of impermanence is shocking to one way of looking at things. There's a lot of loss, but really just losing your um, unfamiliarity. You're losing um, what... Uh, you're losing the barrier between you and the other thing. When you deepen your sense of the changing nature of experience, once you get over the shock, it actually brings up preciousness. So my parents, I could rely on them in a certain way. They've always been there. Then I get shocked when I realize they're not. I get over the shock and then what steps up is the sense of preciousness. So hidden in this, um, transformation around change, there actually are these beautiful gifts that come up. Um, it just takes the maturing in your relationship to uh, experiences that are rising and passing, some very quickly, some over the course of days, maybe years, and some even longer. But uh, everything's in this process of change. Another um, example of this that's touching if you like this type of thinking. Um, okay, everybody click your teeth and bite down. The very strength of your teeth relies upon the calcium within them. The calcium within them was forged in a star that predates our star. It was somewhere around our solar system, close enough, that when it blew up, it forged calcium for a long time inside the star. There are metals inside our star that are just sitting there. When our star blows up, that's a lot of loss for us. <laughs> it's been quite a shocking day. 
<clears throat> but it will release whatever is in that star for whatever would come next. So we actually have, get to have calcium and iron in bells and um, silica in all the glass because some previous star changed. It was steady for a long time and then blew up one day. And that created the raw material to which down, down the road has given us access to um, what we're using today for our own bodies, for trees and plants, and for stones and other objects we make. That requires change to do that. It requires impermanence. So the loss is a type of stability but that stability wasn't really there to begin with. It was just our misunderstanding. We go through a shock around that. We wake up and then we realize that there are hidden beauties in the ever-changing world. There's, a, there's an awe to it, but there's no security if you need security to be something stable. But there's security in the fact that you're now aligned with the way things actually are. And that can't actually uh, throw you because you're living in accord with the way things are. Things are changing slowly or quickly. Another silly way to put this is that um, there really are no nouns. They're just very slow verbs. <laughs> this bell is a slow verb. <clears throat> you know, it's, it's belling right now, but it's, it's in the process of unbelling at some point it will unbell and it will be something else. The metal will be something else. And even the metal, at a point, the atoms will go. It's just right now, they're very slow in their process. So this is a slow verb of belling. It's not a noun of an actual bell. So this is the beginning of a... So we take the first 12 steps of this Anapanasati Sutta, mindfulness of breathing, and just learn to calm ourselves down and become more intimate with our environment which has beautiful gifts in and of itself, to be less stirred, less agitated, more, more stable, it's more healthy for our bodies, more healthy for our minds, knowing how to do that with greater uh, capacity in more challenging circumstances, that's a great benefit. We then take that practice, which is really the development of what we call concentration and mindfulness, just the ability to stabilize your intimacy with experiences as they're happening. We then do the third part of insight meditation, which is actually beginning to investigate what's going on here as you actually watch your mind. And you can see what it's like to be calm and then have an angry thought come. And without that sort of basis of calm and intimacy, an angry thought might come and you might be swept up by it and it defines your reality. I can't believe my brother said that to me. He's always saying that to me. And you're on this ride of a thought. With a little more insight, a little more stability, you can watch the way your mind contorts out of its own anger and then is enchanted by the story it's created out of that contortion. That's, you're living in you're two different worlds. One is completely enchanted by the anger that's taking you over. The other is suffering within the anger, but having perspective. Wow, I'm really swept up here. I'm not seeing things clearly. And to your brother, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a different experience because he's now dealing with somebody who has some perspective versus someone who's just lashing out. I say this because uh, I went back east to visit my family and um, I had I had a coffee with my brother. He had coffee and I had tea. <laughs> Which got him into this lecture mode. And he's, he's a great orator. He's well, really well read. And um, the first hour was just about uh, the family, catching up on the family, which was really him telling me his latest insights, how the family works, and me nodding. <laughs> I couldn't get in on the... He was too caffeinated. The second hour is him talking about motorcycles, which I love, it's machines, and he knows how it works, and I would never spend that much time learning about motorcycles, but he knows them, and he knows them so well, he was just telling me everything about motorcycles. I, I ride them, but I don't know them, like my brother knows them. So the second hour was entertaining about motorcycles. The third hour, the, 
uh, my caffeine had worn off. And so it was now like, okay, I'm, I'm getting kind of a big wave of you know, my brother here. And then I started getting a little bit like, God, we always do this in our family. Yeah, I have this passive role, and he has this active role, the brother role. I started kvetching a little bit in my mind, but, you know, trying to send loving kindness to him and me. But I was, I was definitely kvetching. The caffeine had worn off. But his caffeine hadn't. And so he was third hour, and he was just coming up with other topics to lecture me about how the world worked. And I was less responsive, less enjoying of it, which got him more nervous because he could tell he was losing his audience. And then <clears throat> we concluded, and he left. And I went to text a friend um, at home saying, um, I just had another three-hour lecture from my brother, and it was amazing. The guy can just keep going. And I pressed send. I actually sent it to my brother. <laughs> ah. And there's just no rope on that thing. You cannot pull it back. It's like, oh my God, no. Mm, mortified. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but then I began to investigate, how did I end up there? How did I end up in that situation? Now, because I have some practice, the experience was one thing. But right away, I realized I just completely um, probably hurt his feelings, engaged in wrong speech, all these things. Like, wow, how did that happen? So the first thing I did is I apologized, but you know he's already gone, so I apologized through text. And, <laughs> and then I began to reflect, like, how did I actually get there? And I was able to use this practice to recognize, oh, we went through a stream of experiences that I find unpleasant, and I have a story around that. So I started blaming him for that. You know, it's like, why did he do that to me? So that was like a, a platform that I was interpreting the whole experience on. But I didn't see it. It felt true enough that I wasn't really checking it with much wisdom. It's like, oh yeah, here he is in lecture mode again. And then it felt funny to kind of like poke him a little bit, but innocently to a friend. I said, wow, I really wasn't noticing that either. I wasn't really tracking what I was doing with my mind. It's like, oh, I had this little built-up pressure, and I thought it would be funny or something like that, and I would let the pressure out. But that wasn't a very conscious way of really dealing with it. And so when I sent it to him, it kind of woke me up to the fact that I was, I'd been taken by, on a ride a little bit by uh, the flow of events and thought I had seen clearly what was going on, but not enough that I really had perspective. And so now I've had several months to really reflect upon that. <laughs> and I've learned a lot after the fact about how I was taken on a ride by my own perspective. And so now um, we don't have a very good way of, of interpersonally exploring where we get triggered or we trigger each other. It's just not one of my family's skills. Um, so. It's hard to actually directly go in there. It's uncomfortable and to go in there and try to talk it out. But I've really understood it. I've really understood it. And that's the difference between knowing your mind and having perspective on it and being swept up by it. So taking the practice of the Anapanasati Sutta, coming down, calming yourself, being intimate with the way things are, that gives you a lot of perspective for when you're stirred up and you can watch yourself get stirred up and blame something. But really your mind has gotten triggered. And that's a different capacity. So there's a lot of benefit in developing even these um, preliminary steps to insight. But then classically being able to see the transient nature of experience. And this is important to what the Buddha was trying to get people to see and become more intimate with. Because you don't grasp at, you don't fixate on things that are transient. They, they're too transient. And after a while, you're so intimate with, the, with the, um, the aspect of arising and passing that it just doesn't occur to you to cling. And it only occurs to you to cling and grasp and try to like bind in a place you haven't really understood impermanence. So anywhere you're trying to bind or find security through attachment, that's a place you haven't really understood in permanence. 
So the more you understand impermanence, the more accessible it is, and the more it begins to become a pervasive way of understanding how things work. And after a while, it becomes second nature, and there are fewer and fewer things that uh, confuse you around their permanent nature. There was a point where all of us would not have actually understood the English I'm speaking. You had to learn it, and it was hard. You had to go to school and study it. You had to do lessons over and over and over. But now you cannot not hear the English I'm speaking. You can't go back. You cannot just reduce this to sound as much as you may want to. <laughs> Especially during meditation, like it's just sounds, just ah, No, it's English, I understand what you're saying. You can't go back. It's, in fact, the more you go on, the stronger the understanding of English is. It only gets stronger um, as you practice it. The same is true with impermanence. Once you begin to be intimate with it, and it becomes more accessible, it begins how you just see everything. And it's everywhere. Everything's teaching you about impermanence all the time. The very words I'm speaking are teaching you about impermanence. The feelings in your body are teaching you about impermanence. The fact that there's no daylight outside when there was earlier, that's teaching you about impermanence. Every scratch on your car is teaching you about impermanence. Every chip on your favorite cup is teaching you about impermanence. The paint job getting older on your house is teaching you about impermanence. Looking in the eyes of the people you love and seeing they're getting older is teaching you about impermanence. We're under a waterfall all the time of impermanence. We have a little umbrella up going, no, no, no. <laughs> but once you begin to see it, it's like, oh, this bell is impermanent. It's just slow. So that's kind of nice. But it's not not impermanent. It's just going about it slowly. Okay. So then when it does change, fine. It hasn't disappointed me. It's kind of a relief. This bell doesn't have to put up with my need for it to be permanent. It's just doing its thing, being impermanent, just going about it in a slow way. Okay, great. My uh, mouth is moving very fast. It's doing more impermanence much more quickly. Okay, well, slow impermanence, fast impermanence, but it's all impermanence. As that becomes more second nature, it really just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense when your mind throws up these strategies to cling and crave and grasp and fixate. It just doesn't make sense. It's an old habit but it doesn't seem like something you want to opt for. I used to really love um, Three Musketeers and uh, Snickers candy bars. I loved them. Mm -hmm. Like if that was a part of the day, the day was glorious. Just one bar somewhere, a promise of it. I used to walk a mile from my house with my friends to get one Snickers bar, one Three Musketeer. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> when did it happen? I don't know. I never made the decision. It just faded as something worth really obsessing about. But as I'm walking through the aisle buying my groceries, I look over and I see all the candy bars. There's a bang, oh yeah, Snickers bars. But no, not today. I don't grasp at it. It's not rewarding. I didn't have to really work at it. It just faded through really experiencing them. After a while, this wasn't that appealing. The same with the, with the need to fixate. The same with the need to get your security strategies into um, binding or clinging or grasping or trying to get things to be permanent. You find more security in being able to surf through time with the ever-changing nature of experiences. It's much more secure because it's actually resting in reality. It's like the the universe is one big waterbed, <laughs> and sometimes there's a lot of waves and sometimes it's still, but it never is not a waterbed. It's just constantly in motion, and you can learn to be comfortable on that. I used to spend a lot of time uh, sailing. I grew up in Rhode Island, and there's this huge ocean and inner bay there. And you first get on a sailboat, a little one, and it wobbles all the time. And you're constantly having to hold on to things to stabilize yourself because it's just changing. Where's that solid ground? And after a while, you internalize that. And after a while, you don't need to do it. And after a while, you don't even think about it. You just have what's called sea legs. And so waves come, and you just start adapting to it. 
And in fact, when you get back onto solid ground, it feels weird that things aren't moving. So the same, we become intimate with reality. We become intimate with the ever-changing nature of experience, the arising, the quickly arising, the quickly passing nature, the slow arcs of change, but it's all one big sea of change. And we get comfortable with that. And then you're not fighting against reality. You're in alignment with it. You're in the flow of how things actually are working. It's much easier than trying to actually do it the other way, fighting the way things are. Um, in the time we have left, I just want to see if there are any questions or reflections on this topic. I've sort of uh, covered it enough. I might just finish out this particular section um, contemplating impermanence is where the meditation goes from just being present to being present with impermanence that leads to a type of dispassion. And the dispassion is not to become flat emotionally, but just not embroiled trying to get things that you want because they're all slipping by. And so you're enjoying the things that are slipping by, but there's a type of uh, less agitation that comes, then you can relax and see, well, I don't grip, things pass away, but I'm okay. I don't grip, things pass away, well, I'm okay. That's a development. And then there comes this point where you think, I'm actually totally okay not grasping. I'm totally okay not clinging. I actually work much better when I learn not to fixate, when I learn to actually be in an ever-changing world. Those are the last four steps of these 16 steps just to show the progression of developing mindfulness um, and then using that mindfulness for developing insight. And the key insight begins as we notice the arising, passing nature of experience. So I'll just see if there are a few questions out there yeah, over here. I wondered how you would, if you will, share with us when you were feeling that your brother was on a uh, sort of a blabathon. <laughs> um, if you could have known that it would end up with you mistakenly sending him someone else's uh, information that you wanted to go to someone else. How would you have liked it to be? I mean, were you just bored or did you just feel like... Anything you can tell me about that, because... Okay, I'll answer that, but in a little bit of a roundabout way. Okay. Um, my uh, father has a dog, and the dog is an Australian cattle dog, which is a very particular breed, and it was bred genetically to do a lot of work on the, the outback of Australia. It's not bred to be a family dog um, in a middle-class family. It just, it just got too much going on inside to be more like a golden retriever. I also know dogs to be fairly trainable, and so I've tried to train this dog over and over and over to be more uh, like a family dog and less like an Australian cattle dog. And it has worn me down so that I now know it's like to coexist with an Australian cattle dog. That's its nature. It's not bred to be other than it is. If you wanted a golden retriever, you should get a golden retriever. Not try to convert an Australian cattle dog into a golden retriever. That would be genetically about a hundred generations. And it would probably look like a golden retriever. It wouldn't look like an Australian cattle dog. So we try to change the world, and some things can be changed, but so much more of your actual well-being can come when you relax into the way things are, okay. and then see what is changeable. But don't hitch your well-being to the outcome. You can find well-being in the way things are, and then go about trying to improve things, but not risking your well-being. 
Your well-being is most secure when you can rest in the way things actually are. So with my brother and my relationship, we've gotten more conscious of it over time. We're different people. We have different strategies about how we negotiate ourselves and our relationships to the world and our relationships in the family. I just enjoy him more when I let him be him. Mm. And the first two hours were great. <laughs> and the third hour, I was just, I was just probably a little jet lagged, a little tired. There's something slightly oppressive about a one-way conversation. <laughs> and that we've done it before, we've talked about it, and it doesn't seem to change, but I just consider it his cattle dog nature, that that's the way it is. And I, and I actually, I really love him. And the first two hours were great. And the last third was not um, bad, it was familiar, it just had this slightly oppressive side to it. And if I'd been able to like recognize that, I wouldn't have needed to kind of let off some steam. It just would have been like, oh yeah, this has been the way it is for 47 years. So this is the cattle dog nature of my family. It's not what I wish, but it is what I have. And I've actually turned to what I have. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. I mean, we, we are, if you measure up from the bottom, we are living on top of countless miracles, measuring these little fluctuations on top, good day, bad day, good day, bad day. But you have a human body it is phenomenal. We should just be in jaw-dropping awe all the time, turning to each other like, oh, you have one too? Oh my God, I have one. I've had one my whole life. Amazing. Wow. No way. No way. No way. We should be saying that all the time. We're like, after all, like, yeah, well, got a human body. No. Oh my God. A trillion cells working in perfect unison, and you don't really have to do much about it. <laughs> so, you can have a mind like that in awe of the way things actually are. I, and when I'm in that space, I love my family, as quirky as they are. I often wonder what it would be like if my brother heard one of these talks. He's not really into Buddhism, <laughs> so I don't know if he'll ever listen. Um, no, not like I want to keep talking about your brother, but uh, I do wonder. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I do wonder how do you deal with, you know, the third hour, and by that I mean like okay, you're getting into a situation in which, yeah. you know, uh, you're uncomfortable. You yeah. perhaps are able to detect some of those triggers, and then. You know, if you happen to be aware enough about it before you drift, and you know, how do you deal with a situation in which, okay, I'm uncomfortable, I'm not really appreciating what's happening, or just don't like it, or yeah. you know, do I leave? Do I just accept things the way they are and just be like, oh, this is great, but not really. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, Rick, right? Yeah. Like dealing with it third hour, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the more I can actually deal with myself and my reactivity, and I can actually not numb myself out, because that's not useful, but I can actually feel what's going on and I have. There are other strategies. We've talked about it before. And he's told me that, you know, he's very uncomfortable with silence and I'm not. And so for him to be, for the two of us to be in a conversation, he is feeling the silence a lot. And I actually don't mind it. So that there's, there's, I can see the forces that are happening between us. He's not at a place, and I'm not at a place where we're, we're trying something radically new because it's basically okay. It's just that there is that third hour. So that's one example. It's a light one. It happens when I visit my family and I know how to navigate it most of the time. <laughs> but there are harder circumstances. And <clears throat> it's not, you don't want so much contentment that you don't try any other solution. But the more actual contentment you can recover in the face of the way things actually are, the more productive you are about making change. I used to work in a shelter for homeless teenagers. And if I was in a place of discontent, I was not better for them. I would be much better at problem solving 
all the difficulties that a teenager would be going through in a crisis shelter if some part of me was okay with the fact that we were in a crisis shelter. If I was too disturbed by it, I actually was less helpful. So I might commiserate better, but we don't end up anywhere. We're just commiserated. But if I can, I was like, okay, I've been here before. Society does this. This family's had a hard time. There's been some really intense things happening. I'm okay. What can we do about this? Versus I can't hear one more of these stories. I'm going to quit. Burnout is feeling too much and needing to stop it. Capacity means I'm actually okay. I can, I can do this another day, another week, another month, another year. Same in the, and I was a volunteer in a hospice ward, freaking out about death and really, really being in anguish because someone's dying feels good to a point because you see that somebody gets the gravity of your situation. But then at some point, it's actually much better to be with somebody who can hold your hand while you're actually going through a dying process. That is rare and profound. And it's not that that person is blasé about the fact that you're dying. They see it, but they have capacity to see it. So one part of this practice is building capacity for reality so you can work well within it and still be an advocate for change. But if you're needing to change something because you can't stay in reality, you're going to burn out really fast. I used to work at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship with a lot of activists who were driving at reckless speeds towards burnout because they cared so much about what they were doing and they couldn't imagine coming at it any slower because they were so impassioned uh, by it. And the passion was beautiful, it just wasn't productive for long-term change. To really change something, you have to be intimate with it and carry that intimacy at a depth for over time to really change something. So it's one part building capacity for the realities you're in so you can actually then see do changes need to be made. And I'm much more likely in my family at this point going to find what I'm looking for by accepting the cattle dog nature of my family than hoping there's still some incredible thing I could do that would crack it wide open and make it all different. And so the more I've accepted, yeah, this is the way it is, I don't suffer as much. I was a monk 15 years ago and I left because I got radically ill with chronic fatigue syndrome, um, which is a, a, a disturbance in one's being at a level I never knew possible. Deeply aggravated fatigue, um, inflammation, uh, pain, confusion in the mind. My wishing that it hadn't happened didn't help at all. It was one more bummer of the day. My saying it is happening and it's unpleasant took my suffering from a billion plus one just down to a billion. And I could take it down further and further and further by saying it did happen. This is what today is like. So the practice of actually aligning with how things are, it's not a hallmark sentiment. This is very profound practice to come intimately into the way things are. So the first contemplation is about arising and passing. There's another contemplation where you really begin to feel into what's called the, um, the dissatisfying nature of experience. That as we get into it, life is going to serve up unsatisfying experiences. And you can be okay with that. All my relationships have improved because I've allowed them to get unpleasant at times. And they were going to get unpleasant sometimes whether I allowed them or not. <laughs> You know, as if I could control that. But I don't freak out anymore. It's just, oh, we're passing through something unpleasant. This is an unpleasant part of being in relationship. Here we are. That's not a sign that there's a problem. It's just the nature of all experiences, they'll pass through unpleasant times. If you can actually be in that intimately, you stand a chance of saying, this is unpleasant, I'm okay, but 
if we try this, it might be less unpleasant. Then the person says, no, 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 we can't do that. It doesn't work for me. It's like, okay, that was an idea. It's still unpleasant. We don't have a solution. It's just unpleasant. We're going to hang out a little bit longer. Either unpleasantness is just going to pass because it's impermanent. Or because you're in it, you begin to actually understand what's generating the unpleasantness. But you need to be able to hang out in the unpleasantness to find a true solution. So that's a long response to your uh, question. Oh, that, that was great. Yeah. I appreciate that. That was great. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, that brings us to the closure. I want to be respectful of time and people's needs to have this wrap up on time. So thank you all for coming tonight and for uh, sticking with the practices and engaging in the conversation. I hope it was useful. So bow to each other and enjoy the rest of your evening and enjoy your ride home. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.